0: Well good morning again, what we're going to do is just open the scriptures again and continue in my series in 1st Timothy and following on from last Sunday we're going to complete the rest of 1st Timothy chapter 2. As you know 1st Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles meaning that Paul wrote to The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who at this stage of his uh, Christian walk was pastoring the church, was the leader, was teaching in the church at Ephesus. And so Timothy, being a younger man, as we find from 2 Timothy, which is another letter that Paul wrote to him, he was a timid, conservative sort of a man. And so Timothy had to write to encourage them. But in the church at Ephesus, there was a number of problems that were arising. And so the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter uh, in order to correct some of the problems that were surfacing in this church. So, uh, with that little bit of a background, let's just pick up on the, the second half of. Um, I think we've got a uh, thing here. May I put it on? Um, second half of this data. Okay, God's design for women in the church. This is the topic that this rest of the chapter 2 um, is dealing with. Let's pick up at verse 9. Likewise. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman woman must receive, quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint, may God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, as you can understand, down through the years, this has been a very debatable and a hot topic, can we say, particularly among the churches. And uh, it's to do with the role of women. And might I say, this is why I just love expository preaching. It's the only preaching that should be done, expository, because it deals verse by verse through the text and... uh, We cannot be accused of skipping parts that don't suit with us. We deal with it as it comes. And so if you're in a church that's not expository preaching the word, challenge it. And if they won't change, just find a church that does. And so here we come today that deals with this design for women. And um, sad to say, this debate, can I say, has seen many churches... uh, and church leaders and theologians and, and and Christian authors in particular turned to culture rather than the word of God in order to find or gain some resolution. And sadly, once ex- the, the once accepted traditional doctrines on this very issue, the once, once they were grounded in biblical authority, but now they have been, in many cases, abandoned and supposedly replaced with a more or a new relevant doctrine to the culture that we live. That's how it is, sad to say. And, of course, we know how the rise of, dare I say it, feminism over several decades now, now with a new name tag, dare I say again, of gender equality, it's just a same old issue but with a new name tag this is the fuel that keeps this debate hot in culture and in the church but as believers we know that Satan who is the God of this world with a little g he loves to go all out and attack what the true and only God has designed and planned he loves to attack And Satan's goal always has been to attack whatever God has designed. And his attacks, can I say, bring the most devastation and collateral damage, can I say, and carnage to society and the church when he assaults different facets of it. And particularly when he assaults the family unit, marriages, and roles of men and women in the church. When he attacks that, that is when we see the most devastation. And might I say, he's doing a very good job at it in society and in the church. But this attack is not new. We could spend a whole message just on that, on how he attacks the family and roles of uh, men and women. And so we're just going to be dealing with what the text deals with today here. But as we see here, this, this attack of Satan is not new. It's not something that's just arisen in the last 30 or 40 years. Ephesus, in our text, the church of Ephesus was being infected by cultural values of the Roman way of life at the time this text was written, this letter was written. But added to that, added to that, Satan himself had his agents in the church promoting these very cultural values that were prominent and prominent or should say in Rome and they were promoting these cultural values and suggesting that the church should take on board and accept these cultural values in the church as well nothing new under the sun right we see the church in general today where things are a hot issue as I say gender equality and and marriage etc what's out there The sins of the culture soon, sadly to say, become the sins of the church. And that has happened far too often. It's happening right now. And so this was happening here in Ephesus at the time. And so right in the midst of, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right in the midst of this enculturated church was the serious issue of gender equality. And this issue questioned God's design on the different roles of men and women in the church. And from this whole letter, it seems that some women in the Ephesian church were flaunting their rebellious muscles, which was causing some serious distraction to the unified worship of the church. Now, don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not having a go at women here today, okay? I didn't write this message. I'm just the, 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 the go-between. I'm just the one that has to bring it to you. Okay? And so I'm just going to preach it as the text says it and as I've looked and studied at this over this week. And so this is what was happening in Ephesus. And as we think about that, this is what the church is for, right? So that we can gather to worship. That's our primary goal for the worship of the Lord. And I'm not saying there's lots of other things, but the primary center is to worship God. And as we saw last week, and so what are men to do in the worship of the Lord? Men are to pray. They're to lift up holy hands. In other words, they've got to be holy in attitude and within and without they're got to lift up holy and clean hands to the lord and to pray and last week it was a sore particularly for unsafe folk and for so forth so men are to have a right attitude in their worship and it is seen and evidenced by their willingness and their forthcoming to pray i hope some of you guys got the message So as men have a vital role to fulfill in the worship function of the church through prayer, women also have a vital role enhancing this collective worship by not being in any way a distraction to that collective worship. If I stop right there, I'd let you ponder the rest of the message and walk away, but I won't do that because I feel it needs a little bit more explanation. And so what was happening here, some of these Ephesian ladies... We're doing exactly that. They were being a distraction, and Paul tells Timothy that this is a matter of priority. It needs being sorted. It needs be, needs to be sorted, and so we can ask, what on earth were these ladies getting up to, so that we can learn, right? Well, this is where the text is very clear. Praise the Lord. So let us learn from God's word on on how a woman. How women are to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Chapter 3, verse 15, the center purpose of this whole letter. So this is how women are are to do that. And so let's look at our first point, and we will see a woman's image says a whole lot. We see this in verses 9 and 10. And as I begin, I will say again, I'm not here and I don't want to offend anyone here today, and, um, but uh, the text speaks directly to this issue and, um, and so let's deal with it as we go through. As you know, we have a culture that is in no way helping our women in terms of dressing modestly and discreetly. I think you would all have to agree with that. I was just in Ingle Farm the other day and, uh, you know, I kind of got to go like that, but wow, there was this laundry shop and they had this scantily clad woman parading her stuff, even though it's only a model, but a very good model. And oh, why do they put that there? Why do they have to, it, there's no modesty or discreetness about it. They must know that there is many men walking past that shop than women are. But there you are. The world and its culture today do not help our women in terms of dressing modestly and discreetly. But the Word of God addresses this question, so please bear with me. See, Paul is concerned that Christian women, especially when gathered in the assembly of God's people, that they dress modestly and discreetly. And he begins the subject here in verse nine with the word likewise, or you may have in your translation, or in like manner. Now we say, Why does he do that? Simply this, that he reminds the reader that this section is linked with the prior one. Okay? Some people say, oh wow, this is a total, why did did Paul just jump straight into uh, approaching and confronting uh, what women wear here and how they are to act? It's it's, it's all joined. And so what we have here is when the assembly comes together for worship, which includes prayer in a right and holy attitude by the men, so also or likewise... Women are to have the responsibility or do have the responsibility to have a right and a reverent attitude as well. And so how do they do that? And this is where some of the Ephesian ladies were really showing their true colours. Which was a distraction and it needed confronting, it needed to be exposing and, and, and dealing with. So Paul says... Women are to adorn, now that word adorn, Alex has taken us through this word. Adorn means to arrange or to put in order or to make ready. So he says, Women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. You see, it seems that the fashions of Rome had found its place in the lives of some of these ladies. And just looking at some research and doing some research, it's very, very interesting, actually, because fashion was a big, it was a huge business. At the time this letter was written, at the height of the Roman Empire and so forth, it was, it was a huge business. I even read on one of the historian's view there that one lady's dress in the elite jet set of the people would cost equivalent today to an average wage. So they weren't just dressed in some scrubby things. There was an elite set that went all out uh, into the fashions of Rome. And so here we had some ladies coming into the church wearing improper or inappropriate attire and garments that they wore were certainly not bought at Kmart. Because this text tells us here that they were costly garments. They were wearing these garments where both well-off, not-so-well-off, and dirt poor people who were saved by God's grace came together to worship. They wore costly garments. They were expensive designer clothes that made, that were made and designed to attract the eye of the onlooker and enhance the externally of external beauty of the woman wearing them. Nothing changes, right? Now, as you ladies do know, and might I say us men as well, some ways more so, what a woman wears can turn the eyes and charm even the most reserved onlooker. It really does. But these ladies didn't just stop there with wearing costly clothes that were designed to attract the eye. They also went all out at the hairdressers because some were showing off their braided hair. And usually braided hair means that they were kind of interspersed with gold and, and, and bits and pieces and, you know, etc. Uh, etc. And, um, and their hair arrangements were real eye-catchers. They really were. And no doubt it made these women look drop-dead gorgeous, can I say. It really did. But to further garnish their external beauty, they then added expensive jewelry that would have dazzled the eye of any beholder. And no doubt at the same time turned some eyes green with envy. This is how it was with some of the ladies in the Ephesian church. They used the church selfishly as a catwalk to strut their stuff. Where believers, both rich and poor, gathered for worship. They didn't hold back from parading in the church, their latest designer clothes, their fancy hairdos, their jewellery. And Paul says, this is Improper. In other words, their dress code for public worship was not appropriate for this holy and reverent occasion. They were dressed to kill, not dressed to worship. Now, please understand here, before you bounce to the other end of the pendulum, Paul is not saying that women must only have a wardrobe full of plain, dull, boring old clothes. He's not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, there is a place for beautiful clothing, particularly for women. Clothing that reflects the humble grace of a woman, as we see in Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman reiterates, her clothing is fine linen and purple. Beautiful color, beautiful clothes. The same goes for women Women owning and wearing jewellery. Nothing wrong with that. In its place, Solomon's bride in his song, we see there, she wore gold and jewellery in chapter 1, verse 10. As did Rebekah. In Genesis 25 in verse 24 and 53, in other words, there is an appropriate time to wear such fancy finery like when Isaiah says in chapter 6 verse 10, let me read that. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord and my soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So there is an occasion for such finery or occasions for such finery. Paul's main point here is that a woman's clothing and how she enhances her external beauty is not to draw attention to herself. We might say, well, why not? Why not? Simply this, because this will distract the attention of people in the public worship of the Lord. Can I say it would be the same as if we came in here slovenly dressed or looking like we're off to the beach? It would be inappropriate. And what I say, you men can include yourself in this just for a little time, okay? Because I believe men can be addressed appropriately or inappropriately for worship as well. But this is where women need to be so discerning. And you may ask, how on earth can you discern the fine line between appropriate attire for worship and that which is inappropriate and draws attention to oneself? That's a good question. How do I discern that fine line? Now, we do know that what we wear and uh, how we dress, it says a whole lot about us, right? It says a whole lot about us for both men and women. It's, it's like a, a silent but loud voice that screams out about a person. Now we know that's what it does. Because it especially tells us a whole lot about our attitude. And the kind of people we are, is seen in the way we dress. I always remember occasion. I think I might have told this many years ago, uh, when my brother and I were in a contracting business back in New Zealand. And we had this contract um, with this local uh, landlord. He was a very, very wealthy man. And we were quite excited to get this contract because it meant some good profit for us. And so before we started the job that we were involved in, we went to meet this man just to make sure that everything was okay and fine. And uh, as I say, he was a very, very wealthy man. He was a son of a, a multi-millionaire, and he kind of inherited everything. And, and, um, and, and so we drive down his driveway and walk up his lane, and we see the gardener just out there fussing around the garden. And, and we said, oh, look, we want, to go, we want to see Lockie, Lockie Cameron as the inside. And this scruffy-looking gardener said, "What'll it be, boys? I'm Lucky Cameron." We never picked him. You see, he, he was shabbily dressed. He was unshaven. He, 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 it told us a whole lot about him. And as it was, he—this guy was a rebel. He was an absolute rebel. He wasted all his money, and and uh, he he boozed it all the way down the drain. And and and, and I thought, wow, what do you this? His clothing and his whole attire and his demeanour told us a whole lot about who he really was, even though we may have been wrong in the first place. And so we need to be discerning. For example, you would expect the queen to be appropriately attired for whatever, wherever she might be, right? And you would also expect her ladies-in-waiting or her staff to be appropriately attired when they served her. We're serving her. And women in the church, men too, but a text addresses women. Those who are daughters of the living God are expected to dress with decorum. Their attire is to portray a right and a godly attitude. In other words, the attire of a woman who claims to be in Christ is to be governed by an attitude of modesty and Discretion. And so, this attitude will see her displaying what the text says here good works in verse 10. That's what you'll be known for. That's what, that's what should be grabbing people's attention rather than her fancy dress grabbing one's or a person's attention. This word modesty here, by the way, only appears once, and it's here in the, New, the entire New Testament. It has the idea of of humility. It has the idea of of humility being so powerful that this humility produces shame at the idea of wearing anything that might trigger someone's lustful thoughts and detract from the worship of the Lord. That's That's what this word modesty is loaded with. There is a similar idea in the word discreetly. It carries the idea of self-control, especially over sexual passions. In other words, the women at Ephesus and in every New Testament church are obligated to exercise self-control so as not to incite their own passions or anyone else's by what they wear. Now the world knows nothing of this, right? Our culture knows nothing of this. There's no self-control. There is no modesty that would produce shame at wearing something that would incite someone's lustful passions or thoughts. The world knows nothing of us. So is men in the church. As men in the church are to pray with holy hands and without wrath and dissension. The women in the church, those who are making a claim to godliness, in other words, those who who are making a claim to own Jesus Christ as Savior and to be identified with Him, those making a claim to godliness are to be known for their good works. And that good works... Is what they are to be known for, not their, as I said before, their fancy finery. In other words, what should catch the eye is not the clothing, but the conduct. And that is what Paul says, a woman should be clothed in, she should be clothed in good works. In other words, good works are what is really attractive about a woman of God. Good works also testify something else. They testify and affirm the work of God within the heart of this lady. And as we think about that, what are we created for, both men and women? We are created for what? For good works, according to Ephesians 2 verse 10, right? That's God's purpose for us, created for good works. So we're to be clothed in that, both men and women, I might say here so this whole idea here is captured in first peter 3 3, uh, verse 3 to 4 let me read that your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of god same deal and this is Paul's whole point here. Our worship is to come from the heart and not to be disqualified by anything that is merely external. This is why prayer for men, from men whose hearts are unclean, what that does, it negates worship. And we don't want to be guilty of negating worship, do we, in the church? And women also can distract from true worship by what she wears or from failing to pursue good works. And it is true. A woman's image, including her actions, they do say a whole lot, right? They do say a whole lot. And as a footnote here, You young men amongst us who are looking for a wife. Don't go setting up her external beauty as the prime mover for your attraction to her, okay? It's easy to do. That's what the world does. Good looks may be a bonus. And I see all your husbands here have got wives that have got good looks. So that's a bonus. You young men. You go all out and the prime mover, and let the prime mover be a godly character displayed in her demeanor and her good works. That's what you look for first. May we all submit to God's word as we continue to worship Him. I want to come to the second point here and how do women learn? in a passive role this is just what deals with in, in verses 11 to 12 still t- talking about women's role in the church and so P- paul continues this discussion and he reminds us that though women are not to teach in a collective worship of the church they must learn they must be taught in other words women are not to be shoved out in the side room or someone special where the teaching and the, and, the, and the, of the things of god are just for men only no they must be taught they need to be taught so it's not an option for the church. It's a command that is given here that they are to be taught. Now, that may seem very obvious to us. Why even bother putting that? Of course women need to learn and grow from the teaching of God's word. After all, both men and women need to grow by feeding on the pure milk of the word as we have in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1-2. and That's just a given, surely, for all believers, whether, no matter what sex they are. But in the historical context, this is not so obvious or wasn't so obvious. Because in the historical context, Jewish women were generally not respected. Even though they were allowed to come to the synagogue, they were not encouraged in the synagogue to learn. Actually, most rabbis... Of the day refused to teach women, and some even likened it to the casting of pearls before swine. That's how discriminatory they were in regards to teaching women and for women to learn the things of God, even. So, Paul's command for women in the church to be taught and for them to learn was both new and very liberating for the Jewish woman convert. You can understand that, right? Now, as often happens when given an inch, people tend to take a mile. And it seems that this newfound spiritual equality in Christ that both men and women have equally, according to Galatians 3.28, where men and women are equal in God's eyes, this equality was used to push in other areas, especially in church order. Evidently, some of the women swung to the other end of the pendulum in this newfound freedom in their reaction to their former suppression. You see, they, only, they not only wanted to learn like the men did, but some of them wanted to teach and be in a place of authority over men as well. You see, folks, although there is spiritual equality where both believing men and women are the purchase of God... And we are his beloved possession uh, where the fruit of the spirit and God's promises apply equally to all. Even though that is very true, this does not mean we do away with the differences of role in the church. This does not mean that women are anyway, by the way, inferior, but clearly and simply have a different role in the assembly of God's people than men do. Paul states clearly that the role of women in the assembly is to learn or to receive instruction quietly with entire submissiveness. That's what it says here. That is, women are to be entirely content with being silent learners in the gathering of the church of, of God's people. Pretty simple to me. I, can't, I don't have a difficulty with that, and neither should you. Now, this verse has come under attack and many have tried to evade its meaning by saying, well, yeah, but Paul was... Simply trying to emphasize attitude that 's all that was here it 's not about meek and a quiet spirit it 's not about the physical act of verbal teaching it 's just about attitude. But if we read verse twelve because verse twelve is a commentary on verse eleven, this is what it says but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You see that? That's a commentary on verse 11. It's a re-emphasis. It's a restating of the same thing, but just with a clearer emphasis. It's as clear as a bell. And so Paul defines for us what he means by a woman staying quiet and learning in times of public worship. But, so by remaining silent in the teaching realm of the gathered church, in the teaching realm, they are what? what are they doing? They are demonstrating their submission. In other words, by remaining quiet, they are not commandeering the authority God has given male elders or those who teach in the church or men who teach in the church. Now, of course, this does not rule out altogether women teaching, as you know. Or be reminded of both the husband and wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, both of them together instructed Apollos in Acts 18 verse 26, in a private capacity though, not in the gathered church. We also have in in Titus chapter two verse three and four, which Alex will come to when he gets there, wanted to teach other women. We had some of that going on here yesterday morning in a, what we call a book club run by some of our ladies. There's teaching going on. Nor does this mean that women have, do not and cannot have the gift of public speaking because they do. And I've heard ladies that are far better in the public speaking arena than a whole lot of men. But that's not the deciding factor of who teaches in the church and who does not. By the way, uh, it's not about. The issue is is where they exercise this gift of public speaking, right? It's where. That's why we have some of our ladies involved in Sunday school teaching and ladies' Bible studies. As these are not times when the church is gathered and men are present. They're not times where those are happening. So now we need to ask another question at this stage. Why are women in the church... Why do women in the church have to be, or have to take on this submissive role? And we see the answer to this in verses 13 and 14. I just love the way that Paul takes Timothy through this. He answers the why, the where, the how, questions all the way through. And, and this is where many, by the way, in verses 13, many jump to wrong conclusions and say that this is, this quiet submissive role given to women is the consequences of Adam's, Eve's sinful choice in the Garden of Eden. They jumped to that conclusion, but that is incorrect, for the basis God chose a submissive role for women and an authoritative role for men is based on his creation order. For it says in verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. You see that? That's the order of creation, and that's how God has derived the order of authority and the different roles of both men and women in the church, which is applicable for us today. It's an endless and timeless truth. Culture should have no part in this because it goes right back to creation and it comes right to us to this present day. The woman was created to complement the man as a helpmeet to him. We have that in Genesis 2. That's why we would call ourselves complementarian, not egalitarian, if you want to know those words. I want to quote William Hendrickson here as I was reading his commentary on this. He says, Adam was created first, so in the sovereign wisdom of God, it was natural for him to lead and Eve to follow, for him to be aggressive and for her to be receptive, for him to invent and for her to use the tools that he invents. The tendency to follow was embedded in Eve's very soul as she came forth from the hand of her creator. Hence, it would not be right to reverse this order in connection with public worship, End quote. Folks, that's how God designed men and women to complement each other. In the home, in society, and as we have in our text here, in the church. So why do we battle with it? And then we might ask, well, what about verse 14? Does not that indicate that a woman's role is derived from the fall in the Garden of Eden? No. Look at what verse 14 says. It says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So what does that tell us? This simply tells us that, or reminds the reader, that what happened when the order of creation was overturned in the garden of Eden this is what happened it reminds us that what happened when God's intentions for a woman, woman's role and for man's role were reversed this is what happened it reminds us of the calamity when Eve stepped outside her God given role and commandeered an authoritative role which she should never have taken on and never attempted to have a calamity So this is not about, by the way, this is not about comparing who was the most at fault or the most culpable like you hear. Oh, well, after all, it was Eve, you know, she was deceived, so it's her fault. No, no, this is not about that. Eve was deceived and she sinfully took on a role of authority that was never designed for her to have and to bear. Adam, though not deceived, blatantly, can I say, blatantly, chose to disobey God and as the head of their relationship he bore the ultimate responsibility that's why we have in the new testament over and over again the fall uh, is linked closely to Adam's sin it's not Eve's Romans chapter 5 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we have this is Adam's sin Adam Adams he's the one who is responsible so we can ask again the question why are women in the church to have a submissive role and not a leading authoritative one. That would talk about, you know, women preachers, women elders, women worship leaders, women, women teachers, women pastors—you name it. It's all out there in the church today. That's why we don't. As a, this is why we don't, as a church here, have that, because it's against the God of word, word of God. So why don't they? Well, the answer goes right back to creation. It's the way God ordered His creation, and we have a tragic example of what happens if we go against that order. So, folks, it's not culture or modern church practice that is to govern the role of men and women in the church. It's God's word, amen? And may it always be so. And we come finally to our last verse in verse 15. And if Paul's instruction to women to the church seems a little harsh and maybe seeming a little bit difficult to gravitate to, because our natures kind of rebel against this, Uh, just have a look at what he says in verse 15, because Paul corrects that. Actually, he encourages the women folk in verse 15. But he says this, But women will be reserved through bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is another verse that many jump to the wrong conclusions on, I believe. The word preserved here in a text, which means simply to rescue or to preserve safe and unharmed or to heal or to set free it's actually often it's a word used to, uh, for salvation it's the same word salvation it's from the same word, root word that we get salvation in fact but in its context it's used in a number of other places it does not mean spiritual salvation In other words, this is not saying that women can be spiritually saved or justified by God and brought into a relationship with Him through the rearing or bearing of children. It does not say that. As an old ACM professor, Steve and Karen will know him, that dog just won't hunt, Okay? scripture reveals elsewhere and it's quite clear that both men and women are justified by faith alone not by works as we have in romans 3:19 to 20 and ephesians 2 8 now there are many points of view on this text and i'm not going to go through them but what i want to do is give you what i believe is the correct one and as we've seen eve was the one who was deceived and in that sense she kind of represents all women are you with me here she represents all women, just as Adam represents all men or mankind. Here she represents all women. In other words, she triggered the fall of mankind into sin. Go right back to that occasion. She triggered the fall. She, has, she, she, was, she was responsible for that by her deceit. And as a result, as a result of that, whether women acknowledge it, believe it or what, they bear the stigma of the fall through Eve's deception. So womanhood carries the stigma of being deceived in the garden. It goes with them, whether you like it, believe it, hate it or not. That's what happens. And what Paul is saying is here is that rescue, deliverance, and preservation can be obtained from this stigma of leading the human race into sin there's preservation there's a way out there's escape and the way that stigma is reversed is by women bearing up godly children or bringing up godly children this folks this is god at work here women women are not to be considered as second-rate citizens because Look at this, God has now given in grace them the responsibility and joy of bringing up godly children. Do you get the picture here? This is not saying that God wants every woman to bear children either, by the way. Actually, some women he doesn't even want for them to marry, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Explains. Paul is speaking here in general terms. He's not speaking specifics, okay? So understand that. Paul's point is simply this. While a woman may have led the race into sin, women can lead the race out of sin. How? Through the rearing of godly children. So you see, mums, there may not be authority that you have in God's order of things, in the assembly, in the church. But you have been given something else. You've been given the power of influence in the lives of your children that no dad will ever have, generally speaking. One communicator rightly said on this, the pain associated with childbirth was a punishment for women's sin, generally. Genesis 3.16. But the joy and privilege of child rearing delivers women from the stigma of their sin, end quote. And of course, in order to rear godly children, how, does that, how do we do? How do mothers do that? they just send them off to Sunday school, send them off to church? No, 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 no. It's more personal than that. The text says here, in order for women to know the joy of rearing children as God intended, they must personally persevere. They must continue in the faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, you must pursue this course no matter what because this is where your true eternal salvation comes from. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you yourself as a mother, and you must continue in that in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint As we must all work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we're told in Philippians 2.12. That's that's part of ongoing sanctification. So women must do that. And it's our role, by the way, as husbands, as men, in the home and in the church, to nurture and encourage and never, ever, ever discourage or add a burden to our woman folk in this God-given role. God has perfectly balanced the roles of both men and women. Men are to lead in the church and in the home and women are to be preciously protected from any idea that they are inferior. Why? Because they have the power of a God-given influence in the lives of our precious children. That's how God has designed us, folks. So may, me as men never ever lead. our women folk, or disparage our women folk in any way, shape, or form in their ability and their God-given role to influence children that will please God. The stigma has been reversed. What an awesome God. What an awesome God we have. Our God is great, eh, Amen. There it is. Roles of men and women in the church. And we just trust that we will submissively bow before that authority and dare we upset it, it'll be to our peril thanks just for your word this morning and we, it's it's a difficult subject, a touchy subject it's only touchy because it's so opposite and so so very different to the culture around us and sad to say to many churches who walk beside us But Father, we're not accountable to churches, we're not accountable to culture, we're not accountable to men, full stop. We're accountable to you as to how we will obey as individuals and as mums and dads and as single people and even as a church. We're accountable to you. So help us submissively bow to your authority in all these things for your glory alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.